Amen. Good morning. Morning. Welcome to Cornerstone Church. My name is Paul. I'm one of the leaders. Leaders here. It's great to see you this morning. Already met a couple of new people today. Really, especially warm welcome to you as well. We are in the book of Exodus. So if you've got your Bibles, if you turn to Exodus chapter 20, if you haven't got a Bible, there'll be one in the back of the seat in front of you. And if you don't own one, please take that, take that Bible home. That's a gift from us to you. So if there isn't one in the seat in front of you, just raise your hands and someone will put one in your hands. The verses will be on the screen as well as we go through it, but it's always good to have God's word in our hands that we can be working through as well. So we're in the Ten Commandments today. Ten Commandments, which is, is in many ways a well-known passage of Scripture. It's provocative, it's challenging even, but I actually think the Ten Commandments are often misunderstood. I actually think the Ten Commandments are quickly dismissed as irrelevant, either because it, it could be that people just deny, flat out deny the existence of God. It could be that people just refuse to have any external moral authority put upon them. We believe, don't we, the true freedom, it's actually having no boundaries as a culture. That's a cultural drumbeat, especially not from any external authority. But what I want, want to actually present to us today from God's word is the reality is that we can only find true freedom. We can only find life and flourishing within the boundaries set by the life-giving God. And to actually do away with those boundaries, to do whatever we want, whenever we want, to whoever we want, will not lead to flourishing. But fear, anxiety, depression, breakdown, loneliness, all manner of problems that we are experiencing in our culture at this moment. There's a famous writer who lived not long ago called G.K. Chesterton. and he gave this picture. He said, picture a, a rock plateau um, rising up out of the midst of the sea. And surrounding the space on this rock plateau are walls. And within these walls are children. The children, they're playing games. They're, they're having fun. They're, they're throwing themselves up and around against the walls. They're laughing and they're having a great time. And there is freedom and there is fun in this space. And he says that the people who want to do away with God's commandments are like people who want to come and say, let's tear down those walls so people can be free. And he says that when you do that, what you'll have is not a game of freedom and fun, but a mass of frightened children huddled together in the center of the plateau, fearing they will be blown over the edge. The walls are there to provide a safe space in which we can live. See, the Ten Commandments, as we look at them today, are words of life to a saved people, words of life to an already liberated people. And they're given to God's people to keep them liberated. They're given to, to keep them, and to help them to live in the freedom that they have. God gives them that safe space within which they are to live. So what we're going to do, we're going to spend two weeks, the next two weeks in the Ten Commandments. And it's going to be a chance for us to actually slow down a little, to pause, to approach it rightly and carefully. Because I think as Bible believers, we can be overly familiar with this passage. And if you're like me, when you get to it in your Bible reading plan, you're like, great. Ten seconds later, you're done. Next, we just skip over them. And we're slowing down here because we, I don't want us to miss the beauty, the challenge, and the depth and the life that is found in these verses, if you don't pause to look. So Exodus 20, 
verse 1 to 17. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. It is a word of life. And Father, as we come to this passage of Scripture, I just pray as we slow down and just pause to look at this, I pray by your Spirit that you would help us see the life that is found here. Father, stir our hearts, stir our affections, stir our desires. Help us to see, help us to understand, bring clarity, bring purpose, bring meaning. As we share this time together, I pray and lift up our, our heads, lift up our eyes to see the beauty, the wonder, and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he came to do for us. Amen. Okay, so the first important thing that I want us to see from this is this, God's law reveals God's character. Look, verse one, and God spoke all these words saying, okay, don't, don't just skip over that. What's being said here? Because there's such amazing truth, beautiful truth. God speaks. Okay, God speaks. God is a speaking God. Don't miss over that. Don't, don't move over that. That's really important. God is a speaking God. And if he's a speaking God, he's a relational God. And he's a God who reveals himself to his creation. He reveals who he is. He reveals himself so that he can be known. And he created us. The Bible's clear. He created us. He created all of creation and he created humanity. So what he says, what he speaks as creator determines who we are, our purpose, how we are to live. Verse two says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord your God, I am Yahweh, I am the great I am, supreme, self-existent, eternal, unchanging God. God is gonna show himself, his character, who he is through these individual commandments as we get to him, as through the whole Lord. He reveals himself as the only God. He's holy, he's the Father, he's the provider of life, the Lord over death, he's faithful, he's truthful, he's the provider. These are all his eternal attributes that we see revealed. And he reveals himself in the love that underpins and flows through all of these commandments. 
God's law displays his character to his people. And as we read this, we read that God has a personal relationship with this group of people. I am the Lord, your God. So what he's saying as you read this verse, he's saying, he's already redeemed them. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. They're already his redeemed people because he brought them out. So these laws are not ways for them to be redeemed. These laws are not ways for them to be saved. But they are a way of life for those already redeemed, for those already saved. Right at the start of the the Bible, Adam and Eve, they had this single prohibition. Don't eat from that tree. That wasn't a restriction on freedom. It was a guarantor of freedom for life and flourishing in relationship with God. And so these 10 commandments in that same vein are given to Israel in order to keep them liberated, living in the life that God has already given them. Do you think some of the the struggle that we might experience here sitting in this room in in 2022 in in Liverpool is the word and concept of law? Gee, I think often in our our context as English speakers, we we see a a judge, you know, that kind of the the, the white wig and the the gavel and the, the courtroom and all those things. But the Hebrew concept of law is richer and deeper. It means teachings. There's aspects of guidance here. It's more like the teaching careful parents give to children that they love and care for. Good boundaries, I'm sure you'll all agree, well, I hope you all agree, good parents give good boundaries for their children's health, for their safety, actually for their flourishing. Boundaries are needed for children's flourishing. We've got a, um, a sweet cupboard in our house. If you come to our house, you probably know exactly where it is. There's been times when I've just kind of found myself stood there, like I blacked out and I don't know how I've got there, but I'm just looking in this cupboard or all this refined sugar. Sometimes I even find wrappers around my feet. I don't know what's going on. In fact, I'm getting, the kids are getting too old now that I can't actually take their Easter eggs and pretend that I haven't. Sorry, it, it did happen. I do apologize. But the kids can't have as much of that as they want. We know that. That's not good for them. Say, so just go for your life. Take what you want all the time. Whenever you want. Go to bed whenever you want. See whoever you want, watch whatever you want on the TV, hang out with whoever you want, listen to whatever you want. We know, we know that that's not good for our kids. We know it. The kids might want that, but that wouldn't be good or loving to give that to our children. God's law reveals his character to his people. He is a speaking God and he is a loving father. So what does he do? He gives humanity humanity boundaries for their good, for their flourishing, and for their freedom. So how is the law used? I want to do a little bit of teaching just to help us approach this law rightly here. How is it used? I want to give us three ways. First of all, similar to what we just said and building on that, it teaches God's people how to live. The book of Exodus, effectively, what it does is shows God's people how they are to live in fellowship with God. And the focus is not just free from slavery, but free to. That's kind of the primary focus of the book. They are free to serve and to worship God. That's the focus. That's the draw. That's the arrow that's pointing them. And God teaches, he guides, and he shows them how to do this. But the Lord is also used to restrain sin. There is an objective standard of truth for humanity. There are moral absolutes that are set by God. God gives standards of right and wrong. He defines good and evil. And so, for example, to take this up a level, 
into areas of the commandments to live without any regard for life, any regard for human life, you know that would be bad for humanity, bad for our society, bad for our communities. I think we know and understand that to live without any boundaries sexually, any boundaries, it's not good for humanity. But thirdly, it also reveals our need for a savior. Critical, critical to understand in the human condition. God shows us this in his word, is the reality of sin. What the Bible tells us that we step out the boundary lines, we transgress, yes, in our actions, but also in our desires and in our thinking. And we can't attain to God's perfect standard of righteousness. None of us, the Bible says, can reach it. And so the law, on one level, it actually revealed Israel's sin. It revealed their need for the Savior. It revealed their need for that, that true salvation of the one to come. Donald Barnhouse is a commentator on this. He, he, he gives this good um, analogy, which I think is really helpful. He says that the Lord of God's like a mirror. It shows you your face, and it shows you that your face is dirty. But when you see, use a mirror to see that your face is dirty, you don't reach for the mirror as a cleaning agent. You're not taking that mirror and rubbing it against your face. That'd it hurt, wouldn't it? The mirror actually drives you to the water to make your face clean. The mirror drives you to the water to make your face clean. When the law reveals our sin, it should drive us to God. And what we see is we read this in the context of the book of Exodus. We see that Israel had a sacrificial system. It came as part of the laws, these ceremonial laws. God knew Israel had to deal with sin. God gave them away. And it was through the death of a, of a perfect animal, an unblemished animal in Israel's place, a substitutionary sacrifice that the curse of sins was paid for. And all of this, as we read it in Exodus, points forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that, that Israelite animal, that animal was sacrificed daily, weekly, yearly, constantly for the sin and the cleansing of the people. But the Lord Jesus Christ died once for all in our place, taking all of that punishment. We see God's character revealed in this law. So that, that feeling of weight and sin and guilt should drive us to the cross to see that in and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. The question is often asked then as well, is the law binding for us today? I'm gonna to give you an answer that's gonna annoy you. Yes and no. Depends what we mean by law, depends what we mean by binding. We've got to ask, what do we mean by these things? There are several different types of law. So there's a, a civil law that we're going to be seeing through this. So the civil law governed Israel as a nation under God, like a theocracy is what, what it would be called. And so this civil law would, would, would be for matters of civil order, debt, land, war, finances, possessions, those things, how they live together in the civil society of Israel. And they are no longer in effect. They were a specific outworking for Israel at a specific time and place. And then we got the ceremonial laws where they were given instructions for things like religious festivals, how to worship God in his temple, in his sanctuary. And there was laws about sacrifices and priests. And what those laws did, they actually all pointed forward and were fulfilled in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're no longer in effect. So we're not under the civil and ceremonial law. Does that mean that they are useless? No. There are principles there that we can glean off and use and we have to tread carefully as we walk with them. But what about what we call the moral law, these 10 commandments that we find here? Let me just state my position on this, that we, I believe in the New Testament, 
is clear on this, that we are no longer under the law of Moses. And by that, what I mean is that we don't experience the curses or the condemnation for failing to keep the law. Why? Because Jesus took it all. There is therefore now no condemnation. So we are not under that Sinai covenant. That's the covenant made at the mountain that we are here now with Moses. But we're under a new covenant that Jesus fulfilled. But, but, this moral law reveals God's character. It reflects him. So these laws do have an impact on us. So if we are going to flourish as human beings, if we are going to flourish as humanity, we need to live within the boundaries that God sets for life and freedom. We live, need to live towards the standards that God gives for good and evil and right and wrong, for life and death, not to be saved by works of the law, but in faith, trusting in Christ, to live a life of faith which is pleasing to God and therefore flourishing for us and for humanity. So as we approach these commandments, how do we interpret them? Philip Ryken is a, a commentator on this who's been really helpful to us through this series. And he gives a few guidelines on this, which I think are helpful. First of all, there's the biblical rule. And that biblical rule is that Scripture interprets Scripture. This is all God's Word. Okay? Scripture interprets Scripture. What that means is that God does not contradict Himself. Never has and never will. And so when Jesus spoke about this later on, Jesus, the Son of God, did not add to the law or change it. He actually corrected misunderstandings that had been put on top of it by people. He was addressing and correcting contradictions. And so what Jesus did, he restored the integrity of God's law, the heart of it. He cleansed it, as it were, from what people had polluted it with. And then we've got the inside-outside rule. And what that means is that these rules, they're not, they, they are internal as well as external. Remember, these, they, they reflect God's character in this. You just read the 10th commandment, it makes it really, really clear. It kind of jumps off the page at you when you read it. Don't covet. Okay, don't covet internal. That's an affection, that's a desire. But I think what we do is we make the wrong assumption that the others are external. Don't murder, it's just about not killing someone. They're not just external. Not murder is, is about anger and hate within. Jesus addresses that. These first and second commandments we'll look at today regarding in worshiping God is not just about physical idols and temples, but about the whole being in worship with God. You then got the two-sided rule. I think this is really helpful to remember as well, that, that each commandment has both a, a positive and a negative side. So we don't just read the commandments as it's written, we see what it's pointing towards. So where there's a sin forbidden, a positive duty is required. And really clear example of this is that sixth commandment, do not murder. Okay, to do not murder, it's not just, okay, I haven't murdered, check. That's not what's being addressed here. It requires the positive side of it, which is a, a care for the preservation of the sanctity of life at all ends of the scale. And we have the categories rule. So it's not just these specific sins that are being addressed, that, but all the sins that lead up to that sin within its kind of sphere. James Hamilton calls this, uh, these umbrella commands. They're all under the umbrella. So that sixth commandment again is not just don't murder, but, but don't do harm to body or to life. It's talking about physical threats, physical well-being. It's talking about violence. And that seventh commandment of not to commit adultery is, is not just adultery, but all sexual sin. It's the umbrella. So as we come to look at these commandments, 
We're going to take them one at a time. And what I want us to, to pray about as we go through it, and please be praying in your hearts now that God would do this. I pray that we would see the beauty, the depth, and the richness that is in these commandments. And that these commandments, they help us to live within the grains of the created order in a way that brings about human flourishing. And the way we're going to take it, so today we're going to go through the first four. And these first four, four commandments, they all revolve around our relationship with God. And let me just clarify, our relationship with God, you if you're sat here, your relationship with God is the most important relationship for you, period. That's for every single person in this room. So we'll take the first four today, which is about loving God, and then the commands five down to ten are all about loving your neighbor. So it's loving God that pours into loving neighbor, and next week we'll look at loving your neighbor. So commandment one says this, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, so this commandment lays the foundation and pours into all of the others. And to understand it, I think we need to know a little bit about the context that it was given to Israel. And remember that Israel, they'd just come out of Egypt, hadn't they? And Egypt was a, a melting pot of, of polytheism. So polytheism, that is a, a religion where you worship lots and lots and lots and lots of gods, small g. And so the Egyptians, they would worship loads and gods and goddesses of everything, love, sex, war, agriculture, the whole lot. And Israel had been drawn in, it seems. So when you read um, some of the prophets a bit later on, you read Ezekiel. He actually says that they haven't let go of the gods that they were drawn into in Egypt. And what God is saying here is, there is no God but me. I am the only God. I am your God. Sometimes we can read statements like this and other statements and think, why is he saying that? Seems a bit egotistical. Well, not if it's true. It is true. And he's a loving God, don't forget. And he's not going to let his people live in a lie which is destructive. That wouldn't be loving at all. It's not right. It's not a safe space for them to be in. God has got that safe space for humanity. And he is saying, I am the only true God. But why mention other gods at all? See, these false gods aren't real. But they seem to indicate there's a power over those who worship them. The Bible's clear, folks, that it's a spiritual warfare. Demonic forces using the lies, using lies to control hearts and minds. That's why God takes them down one at a time as we step through the Exodus. He's showing, no, 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 just me. That's what he's doing. And he says, before me in this command. What he's doing is forbidding them, bringing idols into the place of God for worship. Idols would be these little kind of carved things that they would bring in. Other forms of worship, but other of these different gods that they brought in from Egypt, they would bring it into the place of worship. He's saying, do not do that. Do not think that you can worship me and other things. God's relationship with his people, like marriage, is only healthy when it's exclusive. What are we saying here? So how does this make sense for us? See, I believe that we, we do actually have these false gods that control our hearts and our minds. Just a few broad sweet ones would be power, ambition, money, sex, approval, popularity. Let's just wanted to begin to diagnose these things, the question I would ask you is, what is it that you love? What is it that you actually truly love? What are the things that you think about, get you excited, really stirs your affection, changes your behavior? What do you spend your money on? 
you were to put a proportional checklist down it, where would the majority of your money be spent? What governs your decision making? But as well as it being the things that you love, think about the things that you trust. Okay, so everything goes bad, because it does. We live in a broken world, sinful, broken world. Things go bad all the time. What do you trust when things go bad? Where do you turn? Is it buying stuff? Is it controlling everything around you? Controlling the outcomes? Is it a certain person that you have to go to to feel secure? Is it indulgence, comfort, or eating, or drinking, or drugs, or sex? Is it addictions? An old Puritan called Thomas Chalmers, he answers the question, what do we do when these false gods steal our affection? And he says this, we need the expulsive power of a new affection. What he's saying here, okay, this is really important. This has been one of the most helpful phrases I have to say in fighting sin in my life. I pray it's the same for you because key to this is key to spiritual growth. So what happens is when we find ourselves in trouble, when we find ourselves in problem, maybe when we find ourselves in sin patterns or thinking we're not good enough or not done right or not done enough, what do we do? Well, we go on that work-based treadmill. Got to try harder then, haven't I? Got to try harder. I need to be a better Christian. Got to do more, more disciplines, more time. I've got to stop doing this, stop doing that. And he's saying that's not going to work. That's putting a plaster on things. You're just going to go jump from one problem to the next and your whole life will be categorized by that. He's offering a different solution and that solution is turn to God in Jesus Christ and see him who is true beauty. And what happens is we turn to God in Christ, the God who is life, pours life into us and we are transformed. He transforms us. Let that be your first point of reference. Worshiping the one true God rightly is the only place to find human flourishing. Then we get to the second command. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So that first commandment basically was saying, worship the right God, me. Second commandment is saying, worship the right God the right way. That's what's going on here. There's an order which is clear. Remember, Israel had just come out of Egypt. You should be able to read that now in light of what we just said about the first one. So there's idols everywhere. These idols being these, these carved images that would represent God or a form of God. A man-made representation of a divine being. So he's saying that Israel should not make things to serve as objects of worship. He's quite clear, nothing in the sky, the ground, or the water. That's the things that they would have pulled from Egypt. And they'd have made them into the form of animals. And verse 5 tells us why, because God's jealous and we push back against this word, don't we? Jealous, whoa. Because we read it through human eyes. We need to hear what God is saying here. Jealousy here, from God's perspective, is a good thing. It is not an insecure envy that we experienced, that we experience ourselves in our sinfulness or our brokenness, but it is a focused, 
caring, protected devotion for the good of his children. So if they don't do this, it's bad for them. It leads to death, it leads to breakdown, it leads to all kinds of all manner of problems. So if God is a loving God, then he loves his children. He has to be jealous this way. And there's a warning here saying that God, he actually punishes idolatry. And the reference point that is being given here, he says, well, the father sins, or the father's sin. And that sin seems to be that in the way that he, he leads and guides his family. And is not disconnected from his family because it pours into his children. It says that the children end up in wrong worship. In fact, he uses the word the children end up hating God. So this seems to ripple outwards through fathers. But the context is mercy. There is a promise of mercy. And the mercy overwhelms the scale of punishment. It's not to the third or the fourth generation like the punishment for sin, but it extends to the thousandth. God's grace and mercy extends forever. So the question then becomes, are you worshiping God the right way? Are you loving other things alongside God in the wrong sense? Are you living for other things? If you love other things over God, if you trust other things over God, that will pour into your families. It will pour into your relationships. Let me just address for a second fathers and mothers here as we walk through this. Is your way of life affecting your children? Are your wrong loves, maybe the wrong things that you've trusted, manifesting in fears and anxieties, is that shaping your kids? We live in an anxious culture, don't we? That tells us something. If that is the case, this is an invitation now to turn to God and to see his mercy to worship God rightly, the right way, and that is the only way to human flourishing. If you're experiencing life, difficulty in life in any way right now, patterns of behavior that you just can't shake, thought process, desires that you just wanna be rid of, internal, external behavior, maybe marriage difficulties, your first point of reference has to be your relationship with God. Ask the right questions. Ask for help. It's clear from this command here, God is merciful. And he's a loving father who's able to help. See, our right worship ultimately centers on the Lord Jesus Christ. And not to make images. Why? Well, God has made an image of himself, hasn't he? Who's that image? It's us. The Bible's clear. We are the image of God. We are the image bearers of God. But the Bible's also clear that we are image bearers who've become distorted by sin. So we're now we have to look to Jesus Christ, the true image of God, who is the exact imprint of his nature. So right worship is centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the heart of these two commandments. And then the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Name in, in Hebrew culture, really important. Really important. So the idea of authority was all wrapped up in naming. If you name someone, you have authority to name them. That's what it denotes. And we don't get to name God. Exodus has been very clear. We saw that in, in Exodus chapter 3, didn't we? We do not get to name God. God names himself. God reveals himself. We can't put our thinly developed notions of a name on top of God. He just don't fit. He's eternal and infinite. 
And he's revealed himself already by his name. He's Yahweh. He is the God who is. He is the God who will be who he will be. God's name, it represents his character. God's name reveals his very being. So it's saying here, do not misuse that. On one level, yes, in a vain and empty way, but also don't trivialize his name with your life. Don't trivialize his character. Remember in the flip side of this, the positive side of this, it's about giving God the glory that his character deserves. So we're to speak rightly of God. We're to speak highly of God. What does Jesus do when he's teaching the disciples? They say to him, teach us how to pray. And how does he start? Our Father, hallowed be your name. Great is your name. See, to use God's name properly is to magnify God, to praise him, to glorify him. To use his name properly is to use it rightly in worship and praise. And we get the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servants or your female servants or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In a few weeks, we're actually going to dig down a bit deeper into the Sabbath in another part of this. But this is really key for the, the overflow of the commandments. Here, you see, what God gave to Israel was a pattern for life. He gave them a weekly structure for their well-being. So they were to work, which, folks, work is good for you. It's clear, the Bible's clear, work is good for humanity. It's good for us. And so for six days, they were to work, but the seventh day, they were to keep, they were to keep it dis distinct. They were to do no work. And that no work rule was for all of Israel, including the other nations that lived among them, even the livestock we see here. And it was to be a day for worship. So it wasn't just to be a day, stop, do nothing, sit in your couch, watch Netflix. That's not what's being said here. He's actually saying that this is a day for worship. This is a day to remember God, a day to remember his holiness, a day to remember what he has done for them, a day to remember how much he has acted for them, a day to remember how glorious is his provision, all of these things. And this day has its origins in creation. That's what the verse says. A work and rest in God. So what happens at the end of creation is that God rests. And what that means is he fills and enjoys his creation. It's not just that he's stopping doing nothing. He is enjoying his work. And so Israel, they were to have this specific day to worship God, to, to rest in God's work. Be reminded of all his provision, his goodness, his grace, his presence that was with them all the time. And together as a community, they were to walk out this pattern. And that pattern was for their well-being and for their flourishing. One of the commentators says it like this, which I think is a really helpful analogy. Sabbaths are like anniversaries. We don't just say, oh, I remember it's our anniversary, and crack on. That wouldn't go down well. Anniversaries are to be celebrated. Love and celebration and reflection and memories and blessing and grace and gifts, all those things as we celebrated the sharing of that day together. But what about the Sabbath for us? So for Israel, as we read it, the Sabbath was the seventh day, which is the Saturday. The first Christians, they started meeting on the first day of the week, which is a Sunday. First day being that day of new creation. 
And this is my position that God doesn't tell us as New Testament believers that we have to gather on a Sunday to worship. God doesn't say you must gather on a Sunday, Sunday to worship. But there is a principle here that stands. See, what has happened down through the ages and within our culture is that Sunday has been set aside as a day for, for us to rest in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a good thing. It's been set aside as a day for us to gather as his people. In fact, God does say really clearly in his word that we should not neglect to meet together, physically meet together. And we're to celebrate his goodness. We're to celebrate his grace. We're to worship him in, in prayer and in song. We're to serve one another. We're to eat together. We're to set aside the time after as well and to see each other, spend time with each other, to serve, to rest, to play. All of those things are really important. Building relationships. And these Sundays, if we walk them rightly, are shaping for us. They should be life-giving. It's the first day of the week, so we should go off into the week refreshed, reminded of the goodness of God, reminded of the beauty of Christ, reminded of the goodness of the church community, reminded of who he is and what he has done for us, the grace and the mercy that we've received. Folks, can I just say, if this gathering here with God's people is not refreshing, first place I ask you to turn, the very first place I ask you to turn, and you'll see a theme, is to God. Turn to him. Ask him. Ask him to heal. Maybe some thinking or some desires. Ask him. Ask him to restore your love for him. And ask him to restore your love for his people. I'm always blown away. I pray that God protects my heart in this. With you guys, we have been blessed with just an amazing church. Lovely people, wonderful people who love and serve and get along. Does that mean everything's perfect all the time? No, it's not. Believe you me, it's not. But in repentance and faith, we walk towards each other. We walk with each other. We restore one another. We pray together. We love singing. We love hearing from God's word. We walk out this week together. We have been blessed, folks. Yet I know that this building, we can open our eyes and look around it and see it. But doesn't it look lovely with these bricks there? Doesn't it? Got this lovely little thing at the back there. You know, we've got this big, massive organ. We've got a stage with all the musicians that they can all play on. We've got seats that all go round in a circle that can fit us all in in one go and that we can all sit together. And we can all see one another. We get to gather and see right at the heart of this community is the bread and the wine that we get to share, to share together, to gather together, to see one another, to pray for one another. Folks, we have been blessed. Every Sunday should be a reminder for us how much we've been blessed. Let's pray that that is always the case. Pray for me in that, folks. Pray for us in that. Pray for the leaders in that. Pray for the people around you in that. This would always be a blessing. See, relationship with God is the most fundamental, important, and primary relationship for every human being. I said that right at the start. I want to hammer that in again. Your relationship with God, whether or not you believe or not, is the most fundamental and important relationship that you have. Right relationship with God is where life is found. That's why God starts with these first four commandments. Loving God, living rightly before him. He starts here because that's fundamental. We're not going to be able to love our neighbor and be good people unless we work out our relationship with God first. Loving neighbor that we'll look at next week comes from an overflow of relationship with God. That's the reality that the Bible calls us to. And we know, don't we, that our sin separates us 
It separates us from, from this life and this blessing and transfers us to a place of death and decay. So reading these laws in a way, what it should do, it should drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Bible's clear. He kept every single one of these laws on our behalf. He walked in obedience in every single way. He honored his father by doing what was right and not doing what was forbidden. Not just in what he did, but in how he thought and how he desired, in a way that none of us have, in perfection. He is the only human being who has ever lived who deserved the full blessing of what we see in this law. But the reality is he experienced the curse. He stepped into our place. He suffered the full penalty for our failings, which ultimately was death. Jesus experienced death for us. He went through death for us. As we pause and look at this, I want to say that the more we see the, the fullness of this law, the richness of this law, the more we will see the infinite depths of God's character being opened out for us the more we will see the the riches of his glory, the more we will see the ways that we fail to reach his perfect standard. And so the more we will see the wonder of the cross. If it makes you feel inadequate, insecure, guilty, or shameful, that should drive you to the cross. And a a life of faith lived out rightly leads to no guilt, no shame. You are adequate because Christ makes you adequate and you are covered. And the more we see the cross in our failings, in our weakness, in our sin, in our guilt and our shame, the more we see the cross, the more we understand the depths, the depths that we can't plummet. We can't see the end of because they're infinite. The depths of the Lord Jesus Christ's love and sacrifice and mercy. And the more we see the cross and the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice, love and mercy, the more our hearts should be stirred to live in a way that then pleases God. And in doing so, the more we flourish as humanity. Do you see that move, that pattern? It's the way that God calls us to. God is so good to us. And in his grace, in his grace, he gives us this time. He does give us this gathering of his people, his family, as a time to remember. Because we forget. We forget. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the way, the truth, the life, experienced death as a human being for us. And as this bread and this wine, is, as it goes round in a minute, I want us to take it. And as we, we hold this bread and we take this wine, let them be a tangible reminder of his mercy towards us, of his goodness and his grace. If you're not a believer here today, And by that, what I mean is if you don't believe and trust in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, can I just say to you that life can only be found in right relationship with God. Nothing, nothing, nothing that the world offers, and the world offers a lot, nothing can give satisfaction, fulfillment, nothing can give you the flourishing that you are looking for, that I know that you are searching for, because the Bible tells us that every human heart is searching this way. Nothing will fulfill you. Nothing will satisfy you. Nothing will lead you to this type of flourishing. It's only, only exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he freely offers life to you through his death. 
You don't have to do anything. You don't have to walk this way to be saved. You have to trust him because he's done it for you. So would you trust him today? Folks, if you can't do that, we'd love that you're here. We'd love if you've got any questions, come and ask them. But just we ask that you would please let this pass. Jesus says that this is for his, his followers. Please come and speak to us. We love that you're here. Cornerstone Church, as we take this bread and this wine, let this be a time to confess. And, and let confession be real. What do I mean by that? Okay, if your confession, your repentance is leaving you in your guilt and your shame and feeling bad and lacking joy, you're not actually doing it. Let your confession drive you to the cross and see that the Lord Jesus Christ has paid it. Your guilt is gone. And if you struggle to believe that, ask for help in believing it. Your shame is covered. If you struggle to believe that, asking for help in believing that your shame is covered. And then take this time. God's here. By his spirit, he is here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He loves us. He's moving in this place. He's moving in your heart, asking for help. He answers those prayers. If you want help to worship and to love and to trust him, ask him, the source of all life. And as you take it, and as you see others take it, because we get to do this together, God just doesn't give us a, an envelope with bread and wine and say, go home and take this. We do it together. So as you take it, folks, look around and see the other people in this room. Pray for them. And let's rest together in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much that you are a God who speaks to us, your people. That you are a God who knows us, your people. That you show us and tell us what it means for us to walk rightly with you. What it means to flourish in our humanity and relationship with you. Father, help us, I pray where we feel that and we see that we can't, Father, I pray that you would help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ, see his work on the cross. Father, help us not to sit in our sin and our guilt and our shame, but to leave it at the cross. Father, by your spirit, give us joy, give us life, give us purpose, give us meaning. For those that are struggling here today, just even in light of these commandments and feeling unworthy, inadequate and struggling, Father, I just pray that today will be the day that they see that there's life and freedom found in Christ. That the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross said, it is finished. He didn't say, bring your stuff, sort it out. He said, it's finished. So Father, I just pray that you would help us by your spirit to walk in freedom, the freedom of forgiveness, to live lives that you call us to in these commandments, lives of freedom, lives of flourishing, lives of love and sacrifice and care to those around us. Help us to love you, I pray. Amen.